Welcome to Many Lamps in the Room, a podcast by and for New City Church in Vienna, Virginia. And you might have noticed actually that we have new music this week, different from last week, contributed to us by Stephen Price. And so it's going to be a full New City production. <laughs> and we hope to be an encouraging resource for our parents. And to that end, we're going to begin with a few quick tips for addressing the catechism question for this week's liturgy. Westminster Shorter Catechism Question 105. For what do we pray in the fifth request? And the answer, in the fifth request, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, encouraged by God's grace, which makes it possible for us sincerely to forgive others, we pray that for Christ's sake, God would freely pardon all our sins. Mm. So, Tom, any thoughts and tips for our listeners this week? First of all, I should say that it's a great thing to memorize the Lord's Prayer and to have your kids memorize the Lord's Prayer and even to just have it so that it's embedded in their memory and they could say it by rote. Rote can be a good thing just to have in your back pocket, just to be able to have it whenever and wherever you need it. But this, I think this section of the Lord's Prayer can sometimes lead to a little bit of confusion or maybe a sense of misunderstanding. Hmm. One of the things that I think parents might want to guard against is having their kids inject legalism. Mm. when it comes to repentance, assurance, forgiveness, relating to others, all of that is really involved in this section mm. of the Lord's Prayer. And all of that is really a nexus for possible legalism. Mm. One thing is that when your kids do do something wrong, when they make a mistake when they have failed or fallen short in some way, I think it's important to empathize with them and to hear them out, see where they're coming from, hear all of their justifications, mm. and say, I understand where you're coming from. I understand how frustrated you were. I understand how wronged you felt. I understand how emotional you were but it's still wrong hmm. and to get to before you get to it was still wrong to actually say I understand right. I think um, is important sin is a real thing that's something that they struggle with and yet it's something that still overcomes all of us hmm. you know and it's important for them to see the repercussions of sin in themselves, in others, in you. Mm. That even if you relate to them how even though you love your children, that that particular act made you disappointed or angry or took you off guard, right? I think it's, I think it's okay to be honest about that with them and let them see, oh, sin had some consequences mm. here. But then to move on and say, you know what? God loves you. God has an unconditional love for you. I have an unconditional love for you, but God's love is even more unconditional mm. and that 
your sin has already been taken by Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that there will be some local immediate consequences that we need to enforce Mm -hmm. here. But it's not like you can just get away with the consequences of sin. But in terms of how you are seen by God and how you are seen by me, Mm. we're we're cool, Mm. right? And if they're being wronged, if they feel like they're in a situation where they want an apology from somebody, they're, they feel like they're, they've been the victim, that they've experienced some injustice, that too is a valuable experience for, for you to sit with mm-hmm. them um, and to be empathetic again mm-hmm. and to really be with them as they go through waves of anger, sadness, hurt, and not just try to fix the problem right away. Hmm. Not just immediately try to say, let's get an apology from the other person. Let's figure out how to move on from this. Let's try to make this not happen again, Hmm. which is all important. It's all good to do. But even before you get to that point, to be able to sit with them, feel with them, be with them, And that's important, I think, because it really gives them a richer understanding of what Christ himself had to suffer on our behalf, the consequences of sin, and how it affects them as well as others. It's because of sin and injustice that it was necessary for Christ to be our Savior and in order to explain that to them, in order to get the gospel across to them, they need to understand, right, right. what sin is and how it's evil and how it's not a good thing that we that we have to deal with that right. uh, in this world. And that it's a hard thing to deal with, mm-hmm. but all the more powerful God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness, and salvation for us. When you talk about the weight of sin... Mm then I think you also understand the weight of of the grace that's given as well. Because mm. if sin is meaningless, if it's nothing, then yeah. that means the, the grace is cheap. Like, yeah. There's nothing to it. Yeah. And I think especially when people think about sin in modern times, I don't think it has the same weight. They kind of throw the word around very lightly. And, yeah. um, you know, when you think about temptation or sin, it's just something almost commercialized where they use that like a chocolate dessert that's decadent you know Mm -hmm. sinfully delicious Mm -hmm. and um but when you think about actual sin and wrong yeah it's not emphasized as much of how wrong it actually is Mm. because it did come at a cost and so being with your children talking them through that letting them understand the weight of the sin that they have done um, and then the challenge comes into how do you take that and say, this is really important and there is a consequence, but then transition into, but there is forgiveness that is found. Mm. But then teaching them that it is not cheap. Mm-hmm. I already set the culture. I already enact policies. I already make decisions for everybody else 
on some level. And so right now I'm going to orient myself to Christ. Be, let Christ be my Lord. And as a result, that Lordship is going to carry over to who I am in charge of. So, Mark, last week, we talked a lot about covenant. Mm -hmm. We laid the groundwork for some of the theological underpinnings for why we do infant baptism, why we think of baptism a certain way, and that might be actually a little counterintuitive to people. I know that when I first witnessed infant baptism in a Presbyterian church, that I was a little puzzled mm. and... I wasn't necessarily sure if I got it. I wasn't actively hostile or resistant to it, but I would say that I felt like I needed to be convinced that Mm -hmm. I would subject my own future kids to something like that. Do you yourself experience um, resistance from parents to infant baptism? I don't know how hard you push it on them. Uh, I'm sure you're very gentle and with just a sort hammer. of, <laughs> and you uh, approach it with some tact. But I, you know, when you when the subject comes up, do they feel like they're they mostly just have some questions about it, or do you feel like there's some resistance? What sort of obstacles do you? encounter with parents i wouldn't say there is outright resistance They're like no i don't want to do this and you have to convince me i think it's a lot of what you said there's questions about it not really understanding why they have to do it so i would say there's more doubt mm-hmm. and there's more hesitation mm-hmm. than there is resistance mm-hmm. as i talk through baptism and you know, covenants with them and the covenantal basis for baptism or infant baptism or pedo baptism. I think it helps them find the the root, and so they're more I think okay with it. Yeah. Um, I think there's still hesitation. There's still some doubt because it's not clear yet. You know, and I get that because I get covenants. Mm. I can see that there's covenants. Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, got it. I can see that God's makes covenants with his people, with Israel. Got that. Deuteronomy. Hmm. I'm there. But when I look at baptisms, when I think of baptisms in the Bible, hmm. I'm thinking of Peter after Pentecost. Right. I'm thinking of John the Baptist. Hmm. I'm even thinking of like Naaman hmm. and his leprosy being healed. Right. And so when I have a picture in my head of baptism, I picture a guy in a river being dunked. <laughs> I can't think of any instances of kids being baptized right so what's the biblical basis yeah that's a that's a great question and it's true one of the weakest i i guess not the weakest but one of the what you might call weakness of this particular position is that there is no biblical imperative for specifically infant baptism it's not explicitly said right um there's nothing where you'll find in the Bible that says, and you shall baptize your children and your infants and and so on and so forth. This Uh, is how you do it. Right. Or even that it was done this way. Right. Uh, The only thing that you get are these examples of household baptism. 
Oh. Now, you know, at the end of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples that you will, you know, go to all the nations baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, you know, baptism is a command that is given. Mm. So that applies to all, mm-hmm. right? So we know that when we are talking to parents, there's one aspect we just can't skip over is that Christ has commanded us to baptize. Mm-hmm. Now, who are we baptizing? That's the thing that we get caught up on. And like I said, what we see in Scripture is more these household accounts. And there's various ones from different locations. A lot of them are actually in the book of Acts mm-hmm. um, or even First Corinthians. But we see the Philippian jailer mm-hmm. and his household in Acts 16. Um, we see Cornelius and his household in Acts 10. We see Lydia and her household. Also, so these are these are a little bit e- easy to miss, right? But if you read carefully, when you have these conversions, mm-hmm. like with the Philippian jailer and Cornelius, it actually says in the text that not not only does Cornelius get baptized, but his whole household right. gets baptized. Yeah. And so, what does what would that mean? I guess it's changed a lot because. Modern Western society thinks about households much different than you would say even present day uh, Eastern cultures and societies, uh, but especially the ancient uh, Near East, right? Mm -hmm. The way that they viewed households was very different, and they included people that you wouldn't typically include today. So you would say a modern American, when you say family or household, it's mom, dad, and then children, Mm. not even grandparents. But I think even, you know, if we go back several decades in America, you would probably even include the grandparents in Mm. many households. Mm -hmm. But for those ancient um, households, yeah, it was the the parents, the children, resident relatives. So if there was a household that might be more well off, uh, there will be relatives that would live with them. Mm. So they would be included in the household as mm. well, as well as dependent servants that are not earning regular wages. So anyone that resides within a in a house will be considered to be part of that household. And so when we're talking about some of these people, especially uh, someone like uh, Cornelius, mm-hmm. um, when they're baptized and they say they their whole household was baptized, it's probably all of these people, mm-hmm. servants of servants that live in the in that household as well as any residents there, mm-hmm. but also the children. Mm-hmm. When those people, ancient people, brought their households into a covenant, uh, they wanted the blessings for everyone, mm. and therefore they would include their children. And mm. so we know when it come, came down to uh, circumcision, specifically in the Old Testament, for sure there were infants that were circumcised because mm. you're bringing them into the blessings of the covenant and you're bringing them all into these promises. Naturally, uh, the Jews of that time would have carried that idea with baptism as well. So they probably would have included their children. There, there would have pro- not have been um, a position where they would have excluded their own children from that. And in fact, you might even make an argument that because it's actually not mentioned explicitly, that actually that per- perhaps gives some suggestion, some evidence that it was sort of a cultural assumption. Mm that 
it wasn't made a big deal of. It didn't seem like it was worth mentioning because it was naturally sort of assumed that that kind of practice would happen. Just to get a little bit of clarification, if there was somebody in the household who converted to Christianity, heard the gospel, accepted the gospel, but was not the head of the household, maybe it was a slave, Mm -hmm. maybe it was a child or a woman, Mm. right? I'm assuming that probably that person would want to be baptized personally, but didn't have the means or position to baptize the rest of the household. When we're talking about household baptisms, it's usually because it's almost it's almost always because the head of the household is making the decision for right. the rest of the household. Yeah, and they're acting as a representative. Okay, so this again this comes back to this idea of a federal representative. Yeah. And what would be sort of the thinking, what would be sort of the mindset that they have to sort of say as the head of the household, mm. I want to make this decision for the rest of the for the rest of my family. Mm. What do they see as the benefits? Yeah, uh, I mean, when you think about the covenant as this blessing, mm. um, yes, there's there is curses if you are disobedient, but um, we have to see this as the greatest good possible. Mm. That the God of the universe, the King of Kings, decides you, oh insignificant man, I decide to covenant myself to you. Mm. That's such a great privilege. Would you just keep that to yourself and just say, it's just going to be me and God and no one else. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of this idea that you would want to bring everyone into that. Mm -hmm. But then also what you see when we're talking about federal headship and that representative is able to bring his household in because of, I guess, what the norm was Mm -hmm. for that original covenant Mm -hmm. that was made in, in Abraham. Kind of carry that through with baptism because we understand the... What you know, the water baptism is in line with the Abrahamic covenant, and so therefore, everything that kind of went with it is the same, mm-hmm. it's just it's a little bit updated, mm. right? So, no longer are there animal sacrifices as a sign and seal, now we have this water as a sign and seal, mm. and uh, you know, no longer do we have Abraham as our representative, but then we have Christ as our representative, mm-hmm. and then but all the other elements there are the same. I think one of the passages that really helps me to see that connection is Colossians chapter 2, mm. verses 11 through 12. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the cir- circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful works, working of God, who raised him from the dead. Yeah. There, Paul doesn't exactly go as far to say circumcision equals baptism. Right. But he does sort of make a very strong theological connection between the two. He really shows that there's continuity between those two concepts. And that, I thought, was key to kind of understanding that connection between circumcision and baptism. So when the head of a household makes that decision, he's not really saying that I am forcing everybody in my household to become a believer. Right. 
But instead, he's saying, because I am the head, because I speak for my family, my tribe, I am in a unique position to now bring God's blessing to the rest of who I represent. Mm -hmm. That I already set the culture. I already enact policies. I already make decisions for everybody else Mm -hmm. on some level. And so... Right now, I'm going to orient myself to Christ. Mm-hmm. Be, let Christ be my Lord. And as a result, that Lordship is going to carry over right. to who I am in charge of. Right. And so hopefully, I am going to hold on to God's promises that he not only takes care of me, but he takes care of who I care about right. and who I am in charge of. And there's an other side to that coin as well, that as, uh, as that head does put this um, heavy onus and weight for representatives mm-hmm. um, and for and again if we're just thinking about parents and their role with their children so, and, and many of our listeners are parents with children it puts a lot of weight on parents mm. a weight that is a great burden something you can't take lightly Yes, when you bring your children and your household into this covenant through baptism, it doesn't instantly make them Christians. It doesn't mean they have faith of their own, but it does give this um, accountability to parents, that they are accountable for those that they have brought into this covenant, and therefore they have this responsibility to raise them in, in faith. Mm. But again, a great part of baptism that, again, sometimes it's lost in America or in Western civilization is the aspect of, yes, there is your own personal household, Mm. but then you also belong to the household of God, you know, capital C church, Mm. where those members that are part of that household, Mm. they also have a responsibility too. Mm -hmm. And that's why even, you know, at our church, when we baptize infants and, you know, parents will do vows, but at the very end, we always ask the rest of the members of the church to stand Mm. and make a vow themselves Mm. that they will promise to help those parents raise their children in the Christian faith as well. Mm. You make such a good point in that this is not a magical ceremony, whereas, you know, just because I baptize my child, that is a guarantee that child will become a believer, that God will take care of that child, that everything's going to be hunky-dory from now on. At the same time, it is a claiming of God's promises. It is a claiming of God's blessings. There is both a vow, a serious vow to honor God through your care and stewardship of this child, but it's also claiming the freedom that you have that that God will bring power, bring blessing to those efforts. Right. Yeah. That those efforts will not be in vain. Yeah. And in addition, that the entire church is going to wrap around mm. those efforts as well. That you won't be alone in that duty, but that all of this is lifted high to the one who can actually affect change and salvation and election. Yeah. You know, on a tangent... Um, theology Mm. doctrines Mm. uh, they matter yeah and for some it's just an academic pursuit Mm. and it has no bearing on their life Mm. but when you see how they it connects to one another Mm. so as we're talking about 
covenants and mm. baptism mm. well you know when we're talking about baptism then we get to covenants mm -hmm. and when we're talking about covenants then naturally it leads us to an idea of election mm. and so again it kind of goes back to this idea as representative heads that you're bringing your children into this faith and you have a heavy burden mm. and responsibility to raise them in that mm -hmm. because you are their parents mm. but at the same time they're is a level of levity when you know that God is the one that ultimately mm. chooses and elects his people. Mm. Are you faithful in what God has given you? Are mm. you faithfully raising your children in his word? Mm. The rest is up to God. Yeah, And it does lift this burden that it's not ultimately up to you. Mm -hmm. So it's not devastating if something, ha I guess it can still be devastating, but it's if something bad happens, and we're not, not talking about salvation necessarily, but when something bad happens to your child, it is not all on you. And you can have confidence in God's goodness. Right. You can have confidence in God's sovereignty. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, for many parents, that's hard. I think it's just difficult for many people just because in life there's so much anxiety, so much stress, so much fear. And when we try to control all of those things, yeah. there's so much weight to every decision that we make. Yeah. Because if we say this, if we do this, that means that we'll determine this outcome because we are in total control. Mm. But when we understand that God is sovereign and God is in control, there is the aspect where it does matter, but maybe it doesn't matter as much as we think it does. Mm -hmm. And again, we can go back to that, you know, the main point of the, the our previous sermon series in Ecclesiastes of everything matters, but nothing, nothing matters. matters. Yeah. yeah. You can do, I mean... If you don't do anything, you are screwed. Yeah. But, but if you, you know in a godly response to what God has given you, has done for you, has accomplished for you, and you respond faithfully to that, then everything else is taken care of. Right. You can have confidence in that. Yeah. And so when I when I first witnessed an infant baptism, mm. it was a curiosity. Yeah. It was, oh, this is uh, so that they do this here, mm. right? And I sort of had the feeling that, you know, this is, this is sort of a moot ritual mm. that we can have some uh, back and forth on. But you do your thing, I do my thing. Yeah. But nowadays, when I see a, a child getting baptized in our church, when I see Zoe and Colin mm. getting baptized recently, I am moved. Mm. It really makes me so full of joy and anticipation and... It really makes me celebrate God and His goodness mm. to witness that. Yeah, and so that at theology, like you said, theology matters. Again, I want to reiterate that if you don't agree with infant baptism, if you have have objections to it, that's great in our church. That doesn't mean that you can't be a member. It doesn't mean that you can't be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you can't participate in the life of our church. But, you know, I think knowing these things, knowing the underpinnings of these things, the heart behind these things really adds a new dimension to your appreciation of it. Mm, yeah. So, Mark, we'd like to end this podcast with a little bit of sharing about our personal lives and maybe some recommendations or tips or things that we're encountering in our lives that might be helpful to other parents and families. Do you uh, have a one for this week? Yeah. Mine is learning to fight well. Oh. 
And I'm not talking about, you know, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu and <laughs> fighting people on the streets. Um, I mean more with your spouse. Uh. Um, if you're going to fight, fight well. And what I mean by that is when we fight one another, the claws come out, fangs come out, and it's a, it becomes this all-out brawl. It's this relentless attack on the other mm-hmm. as if they are the other mm-hmm. as if they're enemies mm-hmm. they're no longer <laughs> this person that you have vowed to love for better or worse they're just your enemy yeah and you say things that are nasty or you say things that you know will push their buttons and get under their skin you're in a combative stance yeah but when we understand that in marriage you are in it together mm. you are in it together you you have to learn to fight fight in a way where you will love one another more afterward mm. now it doesn't make sense mark you've got to tell me the secret to this it's there there absolutely is no secret except for humility mm. understanding again your own sinfulness mm. but the necessity for fighting what I found was with um, with my wife and I, we're both fairly passive. We don't want to say things. And so when th- we're kind of irritated, we'll make passive-aggressive comments. Mm-hmm. But it's when we fight that we actually let our true feelings come out, mm-hmm. which can be bad. Mm-hmm. But all it, it's also very helpful because we learn so much of one another. Mm. And again, it's you learn about each other, you learn to love each other more, you learn what bothers the other, and you learn a word that most people don't like to use is compromise. Mm -hmm. But you learn to to work with one another Mm. and not to press the buttons of the other. And so in fighting, you're learning how to fight, how how to make your frustrations and how to make your complaints known to the other, but not doing it so that you're attacking the other. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where once you kind of figure that out, it, it does, these fights actually do help strengthen your marriage because you're given these opportunities. Yes, it's nasty or yes, it's unpleasant at the moment, but you are made more aware of how your sin affects this other person. Mm-hmm. And it gives you an opportunity to repent and reconcile. Uh, but it also reveals the things that they are struggling with so that you can um, help encourage and strengthen them. And so it's an opportunity for you to mutually invest in one another. Uh, yeah, and it's kind of the putting the iron into the fire for refinement and to, to strengthen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how I've begun uh, to think about the fights now and Mm. you know we're only three years in so there's much more refinement to come but i'm beginning to understand that part Mm. that you're never going to not fight but how can you fight well Mm. you can't learn how to most effectively engage unless you actually do engage Right. Yeah. You have to actually make that connection, even if it's an ugly connection, in order to then sort of figure out, okay, what went wrong here? What can I learn from this? How can we do it better next time? But if you just stay on your own sides Mm -hmm. and never engage, those lessons never get learned. There's this one last little story. I think it's, it's so funny. If you know my wife, again, she is not a combative person. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's very she's sweet. She's so sweet. Yeah. She's so nice, very kind. And before we got married, 
you know, she would say like, I never thought of my purse myself as having anger issues or getting angry. But after marrying you, <laughs> um, and so again, like she would never want to fight. She would always want to avoid it. Mm. But there's one instance, maybe it was in the past year where we were fighting and I think we had someone over our house, maybe in the basement or something like that. And and she was really upset. She gets up and she starts walking towards the stairs. And I'm thinking, oh, she's angry. She just wants to get away from me mm-hmm. and just cool down. Mm. And then she gets to the stairs and she turns back to me and she says, I want to fight. <laughs> so you need to come upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, good for her. Right. Good for her. But it's sweet Avery. Yeah. But again, it kind of goes back to because she wants to say her part. Yeah. She needs to say this and we need to have this conversation. Yeah. And when you don't talk, that's again, when communication breaks down, that's the worst. Now, it's not to say you should just start yelling and screaming at each other and fighting all the time. But yeah, it's, it's learning how to do that well without trying to scar one another and hurt one another um, but using those as opportunities to learn and grow it's a good thing to hear even for someone who's been as married as long as i have dana and i still fight shocking (laughs) (laughs) and you know we can go long spells without fighting Mm. but when we do fight it's often productive Mm. it's often exhausting yeah It's often frustrating. It's, you know, feelings will get hurt. They are fights. They're not just discussions. Mm. But I think because we're both committed Mm. to each other. Yeah, I think that's To get through to the other side of it. Yeah. And figure out. It it can be a breakthrough. Yeah. Well, I have a profound one Mm. today. Lego Advent Calendars. Ooh. Yeah. So I, I'm a big cheerleader for Advent. Mm. I think it's a great way for a family to celebrate Christmas, the holiday season, in a way that's intentional and spiritual. I love Advent calendars. I love, you know, that that little ritual of kids every day getting a little bit of a of a surprise, a gift, something that they can look forward to, mm. building that anticipation, right. and also giving an occasion to talk a little bit more about Jesus Christ. Mm. You can definitely do Advent and have an Advent calendar that is very low-key. Mm. You just need a piece of paper, really. Right. right. But when I saw the Lego Advent calendars, mm. I was like, my kids will be so excited <laughs> about these. They have different themes. So there's a Star Wars one, there's a Harry Potter one, there's a Lego City one, there's a Marvel one, and every year they change their calendars. Mm. So the 2022 version is different from the 2021 version, and they sell out fast. So that's why I wanted to bring it today, (laughs) because you can get them on Amazon. I got mine off of Amazon Mm -hmm. But if you want to get a hold of 2022 Lego Advent Calendar, you should probably buy it now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's our show for today. We'd love to hear any comments, questions, or suggestions. Our discussion engendered, which you can email to mark at mark at newcityva.org. And let us know if our recommendations were helpful or if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. 
Uh, we'd like to thank Sonny for his generosity, to Stephen for his music, and Pastor Paul for giving us the nudge uh, to make this podcast. Watch those windows. Watch those windows. So one thing, so in the intro, I was trying to think through this because uh, you mention New City and then you say Falls Church. Mm-hmm. Should it not be? Should it, should it, should it be like Vienna, Vienna or Tyson's? Technically. So Vienna. I, don't, I don't know. Are we in Falls Church? <laughs> that, it started making it's me a, think I was like it's kind of a gray area because it's it's next to Tyson's Corner mm-hmm. is Tyson's Corner in Vienna or is it in Tyson's <sighs> that's true I don't really know I know like when I put in addresses I don't know if there's actually an address for Tyson's Corner uh, yeah. maybe there is um, but I know at least our does it show up in Google Maps as Vienna yeah so if you go to our like the Google Maps for our building. It says mm. Vienna. Mm.